On behalf of RBCS, welcome to today's webinar on dimensions of test coverage. I am Rex Black, president of RBCS. We are a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, over 21 years, RBCS has delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants who deliver customized training, consulting, and outsourcing services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of 11 books on software testing, including the bestseller, Managing the Testing Process, and four books on the ISTQB program. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. Thank you, Linda Thorne, for reviewing the materials and making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. Before we start the presentation, a couple notes. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, submit them at any time, but please note that they are answered only at the end. There is no need for presentation copies. The presentation is already posted on the web. Go to rbcs-us.com, find the Resources tab in the upper center of the uh, page, and uh, navigate to the basic library. By attending this webinar, you have automatically been registered for the free e-learning drawing. Check your email over the next couple days and watch the spam filter. I hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not-just-for-profit company. Now, today's presentation is on the dimensions of test coverage. Um, now, I, I run into some interesting comments every now and then or on the blogosphere, Twittersphere, whatever you want to call it, um, social media, um, postings of various kinds, where people talk about coverage um, and they make, uh, make some basic mistakes about it. Like for example, people talk about coverage meaning running all of your tests. Well, that's a circular argument, of course, because what do the tests actually cover, right? <laughs> they don't cover themselves. Uh, the tests have to cover something, right? So um, we need to be clear that what, when we talk about coverage, when we talk about tests covering something, um, we, we need to be clear on what that is that we are covering and clear to ourselves and also clear to people outside of testing. Um, just saying, oh, we've run all of our tests and therefore we've covered everything is not, uh, is not adequate. How do, how do you know that you've covered it? How can you, can you prove that you have covered it? Um, what are the ways of, of measuring coverage? What are the things that, that should be covered? Um, so that's what we're going to look at today. And hopefully this will uh, help expand your thinking on um, uh, test coverage and uh, what, what tests should cover, and what they can cover, um, going beyond just uh, simple requirements. So why do we care about coverage anyway? Well, one of the things that... Um, you typically want to do in testing is to build confidence. Um, and the confidence building is in, in two, two areas. Okay. For one thing, we want to build confidence in, in our testing. Did we actually test properly and sufficiently? Did we test everything that needed to be tested? Um, and assuming that the test results are looking good, um, what uh, what can we say about the system's operation? Can we have confidence that the system works properly? So those would be the two areas where we're trying to build uh, confidence. And um, notice that we can't address those unless we can talk about what we tested. And again, not just what tests we ran. Okay, if The tests are by themselves are an abstraction of what is supposed to be addressed. Um, and what we want to be able to say is um, these are the areas of the system that we have we have covered, we have tested, not here's, you know, 150 or 250 or 500 test cases that we've run because that, th those test cases could be redundant, irrelevant, et cetera. Now, of course, um, building confidence is not the only thing that we're trying to do in, in testing. Uh, other objectives would be um, finding defects and, of course, the uh, testing of important areas is how we're going to find the important defects. So again, back to coverage. Um, reducing risk to an acceptable level is another typical objective. And again, we can only reduce um, the risk to an acceptable level 
if we can say what the risks are and whether we have covered those risks. Um, and um, all of this um, comes down to generation of information, basically, that, that the testing is does not generate a product per se. It, it generates a, a work product that is uh, information. Um, and the information should be uh, relevant to people and um, timely so that it supports proper decision making. Um, how close are we to done with the project? Is the product ready to release, et cetera? Um, now, all of these are um, measurable. Um, that This is not uh, something that needs to just be some sort of hand-waving exercise or trust me, you know, I've got this, it's handled. Um, uh, you want to have metrics that are going to be able to say, um, you know, what, what has been covered, um, what hasn't been covered, what works, what doesn't work, where are there known defects, what are those defects, um, how many are we finding, what, what uh, risks have been addressed, which have not. Um, so this should all be something that we are um, reporting. Now, I've addressed um, test results reporting in, in other webinars, so I'm not going to get into it here, but uh, uh, certainly if that's something you're curious about, I'd encourage you to uh, listen to one of the recorded webinars that addresses it. Um, all right, so dimensions of test coverage. So usually when, when the uh, relative newbies to testing uh, use the word coverage, they, they either, as I said, mean coverage as in running the test cases, which is, is incorrect, as I said, because that's a, that's a circular, uh, circular reference there. Um, but if, they, if they're not making that mistake, then when, when a uh, testing newbie says coverage and you ask them what coverage of what, they say, well, the requirements, of course, or, or if they're in Agile, well, the user stories, and then that's sufficient. Well, it is certainly a necessary thing to cover the requirements, so you, you, should, um, you should certainly have at least one test for every requirement, usually more than one. Um, so it's necessary, but by itself is not sufficient. So there are other things that um, that we need to look at and consider. Now, not all of these dimensions of coverage are relevant to every uh, testing effort, but they should all at least be considered uh, as part of um, uh, as part of planning and um, uh, planning your tests and, and analyzing uh, um, the the project and product to determine what your what your test conditions are, what you want to cover. So we need to look at risks. Um, code coverage, white box types of coverage, um, uh, configuration coverage, uh, data sets, personas, and uh, defects. Um, and now I'm not saying that these seven are the only dimensions of coverage, but these are certainly important dimensions of coverage that should be considered. And of course, if anything else is uh, relevant, um, you should also consider that. So let's look at each one of these and um, uh, consider each one of the dimensions of coverage. So start. we'll start with specification coverage, requirements coverage, use, user story coverage, use case coverage, whatever whatever they give you that tells you how the system's supposed to work. Um, so what you're doing here is um, looking at the specification, which is going to define either how the system's supposed to behave or in the case of a design specification, how it's supposed to be built. And uh, as I said, we want to have um, um, these defined elements um, ideally uh, clearly listed out uh, as specific elements um, and for each one of those elements um, we want to have at least one test and we want to be able to um, determine uh, for each of those elements whether the associated tests have passed or failed because that will tell us whether the requirement uh, appears to be fulfilled or is, is uh, suffering from known problems. Um, now, this is all relatively easy to do with any any um, any test management tool that you would actually want to have. Um, we'll be able to, uh, do, to do this for you. Um, you input the requirements into the uh, uh, into the system. There's usually a separate uh, table that holds those, and then as you create the tests, um, you uh, associate the tests with the uh, with the elements of the requirements um, 
Um, sometimes it's referred to as traceability. Um, and so that would be in the tool. And then you can uh, report, um, usually not in a native fashion, but you can export the data and, and create a report, an example of which I'll show you in a minute, uh, create a report that shows the status of the requirements in terms of, uh, of uh, which ones are known to uh, work, at least under testing conditions, and which ones are known to not work. Um, so this is certainly very useful um, in terms of looking at um, where where have we tested, where have we not tested, um, you know, what remains to be done, where are there problems with the system. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that that um, this this dimension of coverage is only as good as the requirements or design specifications um, which we've received. And um, historically, those have not been uh, very good. So uh, Capers-Jones's studies indicate that about 45% of defects are introduced either in the requirement specification or in the design specification or design process. So if you're, if you're using a specification of, of behavior or, or structure, uh, to determine uh, what to test, you're basically half wrong um, in the sense that, you know, any defects that are in that document are likely to end up as defects in your tests, and gaps in that document will end up, of course, as gaps in your tests. So, um, you know, that is an important thing to keep in mind. I'm certainly not saying don't test the uh, requirements. Obviously, you must do that, um, but... Uh, don't uh, think that by doing that you have um, done anywhere near all you need to do in terms of coverage. So here's an example of what I'm talking about in terms of reporting of uh, coverage. Um, so this, uh, in this chart, what we see is that there are six major subsystems, um, and this is hypothetical based on a actual testing dashboard that I uh, built for a client. Um, so we have six um, major subsystems, A through F. Of course, in, in the real life, that, those would be given actual subsystem names, right? Um, and what we see are two data sets being graphed for each of the, uh, each of the subsystems. Um, so the green and red bars represent um, the past and failed tests. Um, for those subsystems, and the uh, blue and yellow bars um, represent the uh, closed and active defects. Um, so this is established via traceability. We have traceability of the test back to the major subsystems, um, and um, actually it's more detailed than that, but this is we're, we're aggregating here. And uh, it, this, um, this can be uh, very useful in terms of uh, of knowing where we stand. So if you look at subsystems D and F, 100% of the tests have been run. Um, so of the tests that trace back to subsystems D and F, they've all been run. F is clearly in, in somewhat better shape in that there is a very small percentage of uh, failed tests and um, uh, active defects. D is in somewhat worse shape, is about 20% of the tests have been failed. Um, and there, there are more active defects, but still, at least we, we know where we stand with, uh, with subsystem D. Um, now, subsystem C, um, initially you might say, well, that looks good. It's all green and blue. Yeah, but, you know, 80% of it hasn't been tested yet, so it's kind of a open question as to what the status of that is, right? Um, B is clearly the worst off of them. Um, very few tests have been run relatively and all of them are failing and it has the largest number of uh, uh, defects um, and most of them are active. So D is clearly in a lot of trouble. Excuse me. A quick cough there. Um, so you can see uh, very very quickly with a chart like this uh, you know what's the status of our uh, of our system uh, based on on the, here again this is a major subsystem so it's a structural look um, like you say it's also kind of a functional look because the subsystems are um, uh, providing in this in this case certain functionality um, so 
you can do this also with uh, with requirements and and uh, uh, based on uh, functional and non-functional uh, um, requirement groups be another way of, of organizing this chart okay so risks um, we can identify and should identify risks to the quality of the system. Now, what do I mean by a risk to the quality of the system? Well, basically, that's a possibility that the system might misbehave in some way. Uh, for example, system calculates an incorrect total on a uh, yearly or monthly sales report. Um, user finds the account update screen difficult to understand and navigate. Uh, system responds too slowly to user input during uh, login. So those were three examples of quality risk. The first was a functional risk. The second two were non-functional, specifically usability and performance. So you can identify both functional and non-functional risks. And then what you do is you identify the risks, you assess the uh, likelihood and impact to come up with an aggregate measure of uh, the level of risk. And um, you can use the same trick that I mentioned before, which is where you, you capture in this case the risks in the requirements tool um, you usually have to kind of diddle around with it a little bit like uh, for example quick test pro or um, uh, quality center um, uh, HP's tool um, which I think now goes by a different name but was was previously called quality center that's the name I always associate with it or before that it was test director um, you have to customize it a little bit to get it to, to support proper risk-based testing. It's not out of the box. It doesn't do it quite right, but it doesn't take a whole lot of tweaking to get it set up properly. Um, and then you're basically, as I said, capturing the risks as if they were requirements in a special um, hierarchy in the, in the requirements area. And when you create the tests, you again capture um, traceability of the test back to the risks. Now, a test can relate to both a risk and a requirement, um, so you can you can have that relationship. And in addition, you you often want to establish traceability uh, between the um, uh, tests and or excuse me the risks and the requirements, so that if a requirement is updated, then you know to uh, um, update the the relevant risk. Um, so. Once you do that, you, as you run the test, you can report your um, your uh, level of residual risk, and I'll, I'll show you an example of that. Again, this is not a, a native kind of uh, report, in at least in any of the test management tools I'm aware of, but it's easy enough to dump this information out and use Excel to uh, to create it. And, and by the way, the examples of the um, results reporting um, spreadsheets that I'm showing you that, that were used to create these graphs are all available for a free download on the RBCS website, either the basic library or the advanced library. Um, let's see. Uh, so strengths, uh, strengths here. Um, you will be able, as, as you're about to see, we clearly be able to visualize what the residual level of quality risk is and actually will uh, allow you to uh, uh, drill down, as it were, for reports uh, in, in detail. Um, but you do have to do, uh, do your quality risk analysis properly because if you, if you are missing risk, just like with missing requirements, that will lead to gaps in your coverage. Um, now, I've given a number of webinars on risk-based testing, and so those are recorded and they're on the digital library. There's also on the digital library about eight hours of videos on uh, risk-based testing, various topics related to it. So if you're not familiar with risk-based testing um, and you're thinking, hmm, how do, I, how do I go about putting this into action, um, take a look at the, the uh, digital library. Um, okay, so risk coverage, an example of how to do that. So um, <clears throat> what we see here in the um, in, in this pie chart is um, uh, the risks being classified in, in, in one of three buckets. So basically, if a risk, if we have a risk uh, item and all the tests that are associated with that risk item have been run and they all pass, we classify that risk as green. Basically, that's fully that risk is fully mitigated. 
Um, now, of course, fully mitigated here means to the extent to which we intend to mitigate it, right? I mean, it doesn't mean there's zero risk here, but it's it's as good as it needs to be in our professional judgment. Now, if one or more of the tests um, that was run against a risk has failed, then the risk is going to get classified as red. So it's, it's a known problem area. Uh, otherwise, if, if it's neither green nor red, it's black. Which And basically what that means is uh, no tests have failed yet, but there are still tests left to be run, so we don't know everything that we want to know about it. So when you first start testing, uh, when you first start your test execution, the uh, pie chart's going to be all black. Um, and um, as um, as the testing continues, what you would expect is the initially the red wedge is going to grow disproportionately fast, um, and then um, as you as the system starts to stabilize, you're then going to get the green wedge growing and growing, and then you would hope that at the end of your test execution period, you'd be looking at something like the pie at the right side of the chart, um, which is um, you know showing that that uh, almost all the risks are green status, we got about 4% where there's still some tests pending and about 1% where there are some known failures. And notice that we can use traceability to go directly down into the um, um, specific risk items that are in the black and the red wedges to determine whether that residual level of quality risk is acceptable. Now, um, suppose that you were working in an agile environment, you could do something very similar to this by simply expanding your uh, task board and the way your task board is defined such that the, you have risks um, going into, well, they start off in the black. Um, once test uh, testing starts for a particular risk, you would, you would put that risk in the black, and then you could move it into red or green uh, as appropriate, and then hopefully ultimately into green. Um, but if not, any any risks that remain in the red or the black uh, columns um, would could be addressed uh, as by the team as to whether they are uh, considered to be acceptable risks. Now, here is a dimension of coverage that uh, many people are familiar with. Um, this is this idea of white box coverage, and typically that when people are talking about white box coverage, they are talking about code coverage. Um, and um, there are kinds of, of uh, white box um, coverage that, that include uh, data, data flow analysis, um, which is interesting because it's possible to achieve very high level of white box uh, code coverage and still be not covering all of the different possible data flows. Um, but most most time when people are talking about white box coverage, they are talking about code coverage. Now. There are different kinds of code coverage, and a lot of people are not very familiar with those kinds of coverage, so we'll, I'm going to address that on the next uh, slide. Um, now, this is um, very, um, very useful, of, uh, particularly for unit testing. Um, I'm of the opinion that uh, co companies should adopt uh, strict standards for unit testing in terms of code coverage, which I'll address when we, when we talk about code coverage in the next slide. Um, now, you have to be, um, you have to be careful with it, though, because, you know, it's, it's, it is telling you that a particular element of the code was exercised, and it's not telling you whether they, that they, the test which exercised it is actually a good test. It might not be a very good test. All it says is, you've touched this piece of code. Um, Another thing to be careful with, too, is that uh, even really excellent unit tests are generally only going to get about 50% uh, of the defects. This is uh, Capers-Jones's findings and studies on these effectiveness of these. Um, so you don't want to be overly confident about, um, about the completeness of the unit test based on uh, uh, code coverage. And, of course, the code coverage is only telling you you, you tested what's there. It can't tell you. Well, there's something that should be there that isn't, right? So if there's missing code, you're not going to find that because it's basically just telling you how thoroughly you've exercised the code. You also want to be careful with using it for higher levels of testing like system test and system integration test. Um, 
it can be a useful way of identifying gaps in your tests, but generally you do not want to have uh, code coverage as a primary dimension of uh, coverage for system test or system integration test. That's something that should really be addressed at the, the lower levels of testing. Um, this is a real hassle to try to uh, measure manually, but fortunately there are plenty of tools out there, many of them free, which will allow you to, um, to measure code coverage. Uh, for example, if you're in a uh, Linux environment, you can use uh, GCOV uh, to do that. Now, the tools aren't always perfect, and they, they for example, with GCOV, there is a bug in it um, such that you can achieve um, 100% uh, branch or decision coverage, which I'll talk about in a minute, and not, and, and yet the tool will show you as not having achieved 100% statement coverage, which which is impossible. So you know you, you have to be aware that there can be some some bugs in these, but still it's better than uh, trying to do it by hand. So in terms of statement coverage, basic code coverage is basically um, two primary ones that are that are commonly used. There's the statement coverage, which is the percentage of executable statements that have been executed at least once by a test. Um, and then you have decision coverage. So anytime you have an if statement or a loop or a switch case construct or something, you have branching uh, or decisions that goes by either name. It can be called decision coverage or branch coverage. It means the same thing. Um, basically, what you have to do is you have to look at all of the where, where the flow through the code forks. Every one of those is a possible outcome. Every every fork point, um, or every well, every branch coming out of the fork is is basically a possible outcome. So we can measure coverage in terms of of how many of those possible outcomes, true or false, um, true and false, have, have been taken. And to me, the um, standard ought to be that 100% uh, statement and decision coverage is minimal level of code coverage uh, for an acceptable unit test. Um, basically, if you don't, if, if developers aren't do, achieving that, there, there is uh, untested code and logic in their program. And um, that basically means they're counting on someone else to test it. And who knows who that somebody else is going to be? Um, possibly you as a tester, but possibly a customer. Now, a higher level of coverage is that, that is in practical use is what's called modified condition decision coverage. Now, condition coverage is basically saying, if you look at the underlying conditions in the, in the if statements and loops and so forth, have, have each of those what are called atomic conditions, the, the smallest uh, breakdown of the, the conditions within the, the, the if or, or, or loop. Condition um, has been at least once true and at least once false. Well, it turns out that condition coverage by itself is not very useful, but modified condition decision coverage is. This is the um, level of coverage that has to be achieved in avionics software where the uh, for anything that's safety critical. And it basically says that not only do you have to do the, the both the true and the false side of the branch, that's the decision coverage. And not only does every condition have to have been at least once true and at least once false, but also each of the atomic conditions um, has to have made the overall decision true once and the overall decision false once, meaning that basically what you're testing is if, if there's any situation where a condition is supposed to evaluate to true, but it actually evaluates to false or vice versa, the program would do the wrong thing and you'd be able to detect that in your testing. So that is a, a useful um, metric. Uh, multiple condition refers to testing all the possible combinations of conditions, um, which is uh, no longer used because modified condition decision coverage is a lot uh, cheaper in terms of the number of tests and is believed to provide about the same level of risk mitigation. Now, the other thing that you might run into um, is what's called basis path coverage, um, which is pretty much the same as decision coverage. Um, so if you've got a tool that's focused on, on the, the whole McCabe cyclomatic complexity and so forth, it might be talking about basis paths. There is a slight difference between basis path coverage and decision coverage, uh, which if you're curious, you can read about on the Internet, but they're basically the same thing. Um, 
the thing about the basis path um, coverage is uh, it does provide as a nice uh, side effect, if you will, uh, um, a bonus byproduct, um, the calculation of the cyclomatic complexity, which is a good way of thinking about uh, whether the code is excessively complex and difficult to maintain. So that can be a, a helpful metric. But, you know, again, most of this stuff is going to be developer-focused at the unit level. Uh, as a tester, it's good for you to be familiar with these levels of coverage and what they mean and so that you can have a conversation with your developers about their unit tests. And um, don't be surprised if you find that you're, you're actually educating them on some of this stuff because, uh, as I said, a lot of developers are, are not as familiar with this as one might hope. Now, here's another very important element of coverage that um, people sometimes forget about, though not, I don't think as much, they, they don't forget about it as, as much now as, as uh, in times past. Um, this is the uh, identifying the different supported configurations and looking at um, how thoroughly we have uh, tested them. Um, and it's either done via what's called uh, equivalence partitioning, um, which I'm sure, I hope most of you are familiar with, where you identify the different, uh, say, types of browsers and uh, security software and operating systems and so forth that you're going to support, making sure that your test environment includes at least one instance of each of those. Or in some cases, people use what are called pairwise techniques um, to uh, generate all possible pairs of options across all the different uh, factors involved. So the browsers with operating systems, browsers with security software, security software with operating systems, looking at those different possible pairs. Personally, I think pairwise testing is overused. Um, it, got, uh, it got really hip for a while um, and, and sort of went through its own little Gartner hype cycle. Um, I think that's starting to wear off, but there's still there's still people out there pumping tools for this and 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 pumping the technique and making money off it. Um, so you know, unfortunately, as long as as long as that that's out there, there are going to be snake oil salesmen who are pushing it for its use where the level of risk really doesn't justify it. I actually did a webinar uh, called Myths Myths of Pairwise Testing. Where I, where I address this, and you can listen to the recorded webinar if, if your um, company is one of those companies that's suffering from the um, uh, mass hysteria that, <laughs> that accompanied pairwise testing about four or five years ago. Um, and if you're, by the way, if you're paying for a tool to do your pairwise analysis, uh, stop, stop, stop now, stop paying the license fees, um, go out to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST.gov, and download the free ACTS or ACTS tool from there. Uh, you, you basically, all, if you're an American citizen, you've already paid for it. Your tax dollars funded the, the program that developed that tool. It is free. Uh, it is a Java um, program. Uh, I have used it on Windows. I assume it can also be run on any other platform that uh, runs Java, though maybe the GUI. The GUI is, might be Windows specific. I don't know, um, but it, there's no there's no reason to have to pay the outlandish fees that some of these companies are charging for these tools when a perfectly capable tool is available for you free of charge. Um, now, where is this critical configuration coverage? Where is it critical? Well, basically, anytime you're dealing with portable applications, right? Anything that runs in a browser, uh, mobile applications. Um, you know, these are these are situations where you really should be addressing uh, uh, configurations. Um, as I said, beware the siren song of the overpriced tool uh, vendor hawking pairwise testing tools and pairwise testing as a as a magical testing elixir that will fix all of your problems. Uh, as I said, it got, it got, got way overhyped for a while. Um, I think this is kind of starting to die off, but I still do run into situations, especially government contracting. Somehow or another, this really got like latched on like a tick um, on government contractors. And uh, 
it's it's used in a lot of situations where it really uh, uh, shouldn't be. Uh, in terms of how to to measure the coverage, again, you know, this is a matter of establishing something in your test management tool, a the requirements area, where you just identify um, specific requirements uh, for uh, configuration coverage, possibly pairs of configuration coverage, and then you're able to measure your coverage against that. Um, now, data sets. This might or might not be applicable. Um, depends on um, what what your application does, but if it's if it's you know you're doing a lot of uh, of heavy data processing and um, and if you can get in and look at your data and do some equivalence partitioning of the of the data based on the different fields, what kind of values can be in the different fields? Then basically, what you can do is is check to see have we uh, is is our data. Um, our test data sufficiently diverse and covering all the different things that need to be uh, uh, covered. Now you do you do have to have a pretty good grasp of the data, um, which means if you're if the underlying database is a, a relational database, then you need to have a, a pretty good understanding of how relational databases work. It's not. Uh, uh, relational database, um, then you have to uh, again understand how it works um, and um, what the um, how it's how it's actually um, handling the data and what kind of data it can and can't handle. Now, one of the things that can happen with non-SQL databases is that they can be more um, uh, flexible, I guess you'd say, in terms of what kind of data they they would accept. Um, which, which actually does create a problem from you for you from a testing point of view because, in the case of a relational database, you can generally do some, uh, as I said, equivalence partitioning on the different fields and figure out what what is possible in those fields. If there's no such constraints um, defined in advance, then you're not going to have anything to work with there. But you know, if you if you can identify the different types of data again. You can um, use um, uh, basically create a entry in your requirements table in your your testing test management tool and um, and check to see whether you have uh, covered it um, and actually measure it that way. Um, another another possible way of doing it is is by doing some sort of uh, uh, query analysis on your uh, test data. Um, now, of course, if you're using production data to do your testing, this uh, might be, you might think of this as superfluous. You say, well, you know, I'm, I'm testing every kind of data that we actually have to deal with. Um, and that may that may well be true, but the thing is that for uh, new features that are added, uh, that might very well be um, adding some new tables or, or just redefining the allowed data in a particular table, um, then uh, your production data, of course, is not going to address that. Now, personas. Personas this is a great concept. Um, people, well, a lot of times when people think about personas, um, they start off thinking about role-based testing, which is basically, again, equivalence partitioning, the different roles that people will have. Um, particularly important with software that has role-based security in it. And so you uh, um, identify those different roles and uh, make sure that you test in those different roles. And that is part of this, but it's not that's not all of what persona testing is. And so uh, what you want to do is think about um, the not only the, the roles that people play, but the way that people interact with uh, software. So you know, uh, you have the the kind of the the confident power user who sits there and you know uh, makes entries very quickly. There's very little think time. They navigate very rapidly through the application. Don't make a lot of mistakes. Um, you have the impatient person who uh, again navigates quickly but tends to make mistakes. Um, you have the 
timid person who navigates very slowly and uh, corrects themselves very often and so forth. So you can identify different these different user personas. Um, and then uh, if you want to measure them, you do, again, put this into your uh, uh, put this into your test management tool as if it were as if each persona were a specification element and then you check to see you know have we have we tested um, via these different personas uh, you know, now one of the ways that you can do that is just to say you're gonna randomly assign personas to people say at the beginning of the day and say okay well you're today you are supposed to test like a power user Today you are supposed to test like the timid user, um, and that that way you you make sure that there's um, you know good proportion of tests spread across each one of the personas. Um, now this may require a little bit of um, careful analysis. Um, you know one of the things that I've certainly had to tell testers uh, on on a fairly frequent basis uh, is you know remember you are not the user. So don't look at the software through your eyes. Try to look at it through the eyes of the user. Um, so you know, you might think you understand what a timid person would do, but you know, do you really? Um, now hopefully, there are people in your tech support and um, maybe marketing or business analysts that can they can give you some insight here as well. Um, also, just studying the topic of, of user persona testing, there is a material out there that's been written on that. It's uh, not a new concept at all. Um, so something to uh, to look into. Again, this is especially particular, especially important if you're doing anything that's uh, that's like, you know, a mobile app, a browser-based app, any sort of mass market type of thing where, um, you know, you're not dealing with a, a captive audience, so to speak, right? For IT applications where people are going to be trained to use the application in a particular way, uh, this can be less important. Uh, though still, I think it, it has value even in that setting. All right, defect taxonomies. Um, this is a good one as well. What bugs have you seen in the past? Um, are you looking for them again? If not, you should be. It's going to be embarrassing to the entire team, but especially to the testers, if a product is released and in that product there is a bug which was identified and removed in a previous version is now back, uh, especially if that bug has been it was found not by the testers but in production the first time. And now it's been found in production again. Um, and, you know, People, the people will tend to react to that by saying something like, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, it's, it's one thing to miss it the first time, but the second time? So it's a good idea. Keep track of defects that, that you have found previously, including in production, um, and uh, test to see if you can um, um, make those defects uh, recur again. Basically, the, the defect report should have the steps to reproduce in it, um, so, you know, that would allow you to uh, uh, quickly, you know, use that as if it were a test. Um, the, um, the ideal situation is if you can add a automated um, regression test to your regression test bucket for defects, um, at least the ones that are found in production. Um, that way you can be sure that it, it, it can't, and anything that is afflicted a customer once can't come back and be missed. So if you have the ability to do that, um, that is the, the ideal thing to do. Um, it is possible to measure the coverage of this. Uh, if, if you have the, if, if you're doing what I just suggested, which is every time a defect's found in production, there's an automated test created, uh, and um, that test then is run every every time the regression test bucket is is run, um, then you know by by default you're going to get 100% production defect coverage. Um, and the question is whether you know you want to add additional ones for defects that are found um, prior to release. Um, you have to be a little bit careful with a sort of a knee jerk, um, add another automated test approach to um, dealing with all risk because that that works for a while, but eventually 
um, it, eventually the tests start to become a bottleneck. Uh, it's not possible to predict when exactly that will happen because there are a lot of factors, but it, it does happen. Um, and, you know, we've, we've seen that with clients. But, um, you know, generally speaking, um, adding, an, adding an automated test for defects found in production is certainly a good idea. Now, this is, of course, going to be more useful when we're dealing with a product that's out there, it's, it, is, it is released, it's in production. You've got some production data that you can look at, you know, some production experience, uh, defect data that you can look at. Um, you're building something brand new, then um, you have to be a little careful with this technique. I mean, obviously, you can go out and try to find um, uh, information on similar applications that other organizations have built and what kind of defects that, that they have experienced, and that, that can be a useful input. But, you know, are you necessarily going to have that problem? Uh, kind of depends on how similar your technology is, and your uh, developers, and so forth. Um, you know, now, that said, I mean, there is there are certainly plenty of, like, top 25 uh, most frequent bugs uh, out there. There are lists out there. For example, there's a list of the top 25 uh, security bugs um, and there's no reason not to uh, to uh, go after those because those are ones that are you know common um, throughout the industry right so certainly look for those but it is possible that you're going to get off into uh, running some rather obscure tests if you take this too far so um, Coverage metrics. We've been looking at different uh, types of coverage, and I've uh, been talking about how to how to get metrics to measure uh, that coverage. Uh, again, the point here is uh, to help us understand what level of confidence we should have in our testing and in the system itself. Um, you wouldn't want to base that decision on any one of the elements that we've talked about. Again, there's there's multiple dimensions. So don't don't make the unidimensional coverage metric mistake. Um, this is quite common in Agile now, where people uh, over rely on, well, you know, we've tested the user story, so therefore, you know, we've we've tested everything. Um, you know, now that's just another form of requirements coverage, and uh, you know, you need to um, you need to try to think uh, think beyond just that. Um, identify the uh, dimensions of coverage that uh, you think are relevant to your a particular product and make sure that you are uh, uh, covering those and uh, when you report your results report your results in terms of uh, of what's covered and what's not now you'll need to help people understand what these coverage metrics mean um, but it should be more intuitive to people than just the raw test case counts um, uh, you know just going into a, a project status meeting and saying well you know you have 800 tests and uh, we've run 750 of them, and 50 remain to be run. And of the tests that we've run, 720 pass and 30 fail. And if you expect that to be enlightening to people, uh, it's usually not. They will sit there and nod their heads. And, they, of course, they understand every one of the numbers, but how exactly that is relevant to the question of where are we in terms of the quality of the product, it's really not. I mean, it's relevant point of view of how close are we to being done with executing the tests, but that's a purely tactical question that you need to, to uh, know as a tester or test manager. It's not, unless there's some sort of reason to think you're not going to finish executing your tests, there's no reason to drag people into the sausage making of that kind of level of detail. Now, as you saw, there are uh, tools that can be used. Uh, I mentioned how to, how to use tools to uh, measure your coverage, and, and certainly you would... Uh, you would want to do that. So um, we'll go into the Q&A session now. I'll uh, put up the advertisement. I always do. Now I noticed that a couple people were nice enough to refresh my memory during uh, um, during the presentation. The name, the HP's tool now is called ALM, Application Lifecycle Management. Thank you to Elizabeth and Deanna for. Uh, Refreshing my memory on that. Yes, I'd forgotten that. Um, a lot of my clients still call it quality center. Um, 
you know, I guess it's not no longer the the official name. Um, let's see. So feel free to submit any questions that you might have. Um, I have a comment here. Hello, everyone. Shalendra, this side from Delhi, India. Well, welcome, uh, Shalendra. It must be quite quite late at night there. Um, so if, I guess you're still here. So uh, welcome. Uh, hopefully, you're, hopefully I'm not keeping you up too late. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I got an email question. Um, some people doubt the usefulness of coverage metrics. Why? Why are they wrong? Um, well, there are, there have been there, there's been like some sort of uh, general purpose grousing and nitpicking about metrics um, on uh, on the part of a a small but very vocal um, minority in the testing community that it basically said, well, you're you're not measuring what you think you're measuring, and it's not telling you what you what you think it is. Um, you know, metrics, of course, are imperfect, um, and um, they have weaknesses, and they can often be gamed if people are incentivized to game them. Um, that said. Um, I could make I could make a similar statement about cars. Cars are potentially dangerous. They are not perfect, and people do misuse them. Um, I could make the same uh, comment about uh, uh, any number of things: knives, guns, um, you know, uh, cement. I mean, <laughs> yet you know, we we we. Um, are still in the uh, early years of software engineering as an engineering field, and we are sort of picking and choosing our way. So I would I would say to anybody who wants to stand on the on the sidelines and throw stones at the metrics that we have, uh, until you come up with some credible alternatives, um, you are nothing but a gadfly and a troublemaker, not a a relevant participant in the process of improving software engineering as a profession. Um, the coverage coverage metrics in particular are useful. They give uh, insight into what has been tested and what hasn't been tested. Uh, and for those things that have been tested, whether they work or not, they are much more meaningful to people than any test case count, which is the uh, more frequently used uh, reporting metric and, and one which uh, is is often misleading and, and, and very flawed. So, you know, I would say that, that um, uh, coverage uh, metrics uh, actually allow us to address some of the issues that exist with uh, with other types of metrics by uh, really talking about testing in terms that, that the stakeholders can understand and what's something that actually matters to them. Uh, let's see. So I got a um, I have a question here on test estimation. From Quran, which technique is ideal? Um, this is not a presentation on estimation. I think I did a presentation on estimation not terribly long ago. It's recorded. Uh, the recorded webinar is on the uh, basic library, so go give that a listen. I can't give you a. It's not a five-second answer to the question, Quran, but uh, a, there's a 90-minute recorded webinar available for you to answer the question. Uh, Scott says, in the Air Force, we always start with risk coverage at the top tier. Risk is not system risk, but test risk, which we define as the probability of getting it wrong in test. All other techniques, for example, configuration flow from that approach. Any measurement of coverage quantifies the risk remaining. Is that a unidimensional approach? Um, I, I guess you could you, you could use a hierarchy like that, right? I mean, because you can make the you can make the statement that if I look at the requirements, I should be able to identify a risk that relates to each each of the, of the requirements elements. Um, and if not, then I'm missing a risk, and I should add one. And you could do the same thing, that, you know, because you can always talk about um, you always talk about risk, 
um, you know, and you're talking about the risk of, of getting it wrong in test, basically, of a, of a gap in your coverage. So, I mean, I think as long as you get down to the point where somewhere in your analysis you are looking at all of these other dimensions, um, then no, I would say that's not unidimensional. It's, I think it's having a hierarchy in terms of how you approach this is, uh, I think, fine. Um, it's when you say, all I have to think about is X, and I don't have to think about any of these other things. That's when I think you're getting into the, the unidimensional territory. Um, Scott says, thanks. You're welcome. Uh, Deb says, verification versus validation. Our CMMI administrator states that validation testing should only cover marketing requirements, not technical requirements. I disagree. Verification is done in engineering. Um, what are your thoughts? See, I, I personally, I find this concept of verification and validation very useful. Um, understanding, you know, that, that in, in terms of verification, we are verifying um, requirements, and in validation, we are checking to make sure that the user's problem is actually solved. Um, but I think what the the risk is, what can happen is exactly what you're describing. which is a sort of how many angels on the head of a pin kind of uh, thing going on here. Um, it's fine to use verification validation as a concept to make sure that nothing gets missed. Uh, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to um, uh, try to use it in the way that it's being described here as a way of, of like, dividing up the work. Um, I mean, I think testing is always going to include some elements of verification and some elements of validation. And as long as you're careful to make sure that the right uh, mix is done in the appropriate areas of testing, that's fine. Um, now, for, for this administrator to say that if I cover the marketing requirements, that's sufficient validation, I would say that, that's not, that's, definitely not true because um, you you should I'll make a deal with anybody who can bring me a perfect set of, of requirements I don't care marketing requirements technical requirements whatever you bring me a perfect requirements document and I'll bring you a purple unicorn okay I'm pretty sure I'll never be forced to deliver the purple unicorn um, so the the idea that um, we've because we have covered the marketing requirements, therefore we have adequately validated the product is uh, very, uh, uh, very misleading. Uh, certainly not true. Uh, validation definitely needs to go beyond just looking at, at requirements. And this is part of why I was bringing up these other dimensions of coverage, right? I mean, personas, for example, and supported configurations and so forth uh, might or might not be addressed by the requirements, but certainly it's not going to, the product's not going to solve the user's problem if, um, uh, if, if the user personas aren't addressed, if the support configurations aren't addressed, et cetera. So hopefully that was a helpful comment. <laughs> Deb says, exactly. I like those other dimensions. Great approach. Good, good. So I'm glad I was able to throw you some food for thought. Uh, maybe you can get your CMMI administrator to listen to the recorded webinar. Um, Maybe that'll help uh, persuade him or her that there's there's more to life than covering the requirements. A beer asks, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Um, Hello, can you please repeat again the name of the free tool for pairwise testing? I will do better than that. I'm going to send to everybody. It's called uh, ACTS, A-C-T-S, and it is from... National Institutes of Standards and Technology, which is at uh, NIST.gov. So there I go. So I just sent out to everyone there. Um, so, yeah, whatever you do. <laughs> well, for one thing, don't overuse pairwise testing. Don't do pairwise testing unless you actually need to do pairwise testing. The level of configuration risk justifies it. There's a whole lot of configuration testing, compatibility testing done by third-party test labs 
I've worked in one of those before. That's how I got my start in testing. I can tell you that what we do is going to be, most of the time, equivalence partitioning of the supported configurations, not pairwise testing. That said, if you do have to use pairwise techniques, for gosh sakes, don't get fleeced. Don't spend money on a tool that you don't need to buy. Go get the free one and um, use the free one. If there are any pairwise tool vendors out there gnashing their teeth as they listen to this, sorry, you need to find another way to make money that actually adds value rather than charging people for something they could get for free. I hope that didn't sound too uncharitable. Um, Abir says, thanks. You are welcome. Uh, Elizabeth says, do you have recommendations on how to create or elaborate non-specification requirements? Uh, is there a special requirements methods method or methods to use? Non-specification requirements. Uh, did you mean non-functional requirements? Like requirements for things like performance and reliability and security? Oh, persona. Okay, um, so to identify the persona, so this is Elizabeth here, she added persona to that. Uh, well, um, there has been some work done on personas and persona-based testing. Um, I think if you were to do an internet search on it, you could probably find some some reasonably good papers and articles on uh, uh, what what pers what personas are common out there, and therefore which ones to consider. So that's that's what I would uh, that that's where I would start if I were doing it. Now, if you're dealing with the sort of the captive audience scenario, where um, you're creating a product for uh, internal use then um, you know what you would probably want to do is just go and and observe um, some of your users uh, while they're actually using the product and get, try to get a sense of, of, of that and of course the thing that, that should be available and that you definitely need to include as part of this is looking at um, any sort of role-based security um, if that exists or if there's a um, role-based functionality in the sense of uh, if you if you log in and you're assigned a particular role you see a different set of screens or a different set of functions presented to you if, if you're logged in under another another role um, and that can be interesting too because I, I have a client that does um, uh, medical uh, facility administration uh, software like hospitals doctors offices and so forth and um, what they they said that one of their real challenging tests were that they could have testers that actually people users who actually had multiple roles and um, that ended up um, creating some very interesting scenarios uh, in terms of from from a test point of view what they could and couldn't get to. Okay, so thanks for that question. That was a that was an interesting one. Elizabeth says thanks. You're welcome. Um, Another email question, um, are coverage metrics important in Agile projects? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, definitely a good idea to keep track of, of what you've covered. Of course, the obvious thing is user stories. Um, that usually happens more or less automatically because of the way that the uh, task boards work. The user story isn't going to be done until the testing audit is complete, or at least it shouldn't be considered done until the testing audit is complete. Now, the, the, the downside is that a lot of these other dimensions of coverage will get missed, which is which is really unfortunate because you can very easily incorporate risk analysis, quality risk analysis, into the story grooming um, and um, estimation um, parts of the um, of, of the uh, iteration planning period at the beginning of each iteration. So. It's, it's easy enough to do. Uh, other other similar kinds of things like um, um, you know looking at the supported configurations and um, and the personas and so forth also is something that can be done um, in Agile. Now, usually it's a good idea for those those considerations to actually happen 
as part of release planning rather than um, in iteration planning because if you identify certain supported configurations that you need to test, the time required to procure the hardware and or software could exceed the duration of the iteration. So it might very well be too late. Now, of course, you could say, well, you know, we, we have this ever-changing product backlog, and, and that can certainly evolve and change the supported configurations, and that's true. Uh, in that case, you might want to consider what's sometimes called rolling wave planning, which is where um, periodically you go back and revisit um, some of the sort of longer-term decisions that were made during release planning from a test point of view, um, including things like what, what hardware and software might we need, not now, but three or four iterations from now. Okay, I can tell it's August. People are uh, people are tired, and the Q and A <laughs> Q and A is not as uh, as rowdy as it sometimes is. So we'll uh, we'll wind it down. Let you all get back to the pool. Um, so to close this session, uh, a bit more about uh, resources that are available for, through RBCS. These free webinar sessions run once a month. You can sign up at rbcs-us.com. If you want a special webinar presentation for your company only of this webinar or on any test-related topic. Send an email, info at rbcs-us.com, or just contact us via our website. Sign up for our free newsletter at rbcs-us.com. That will also get you uh, discounts on consulting and training services, as well as the newsletter itself. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter, and we are on Twitter, as you can see here, and on Facebook. Um, do remember to check your email over the next couple days. Um, you may be the lucky winner of the uh, free e-learning course. Um, and again, I'll uh, remind you about the uh, digital library where we have uh, recorded webinars and other uh, uh, videos and, and resources. Um, and you can also access that on YouTube uh, via the RBCS channel. We offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not just for profit company. This concludes the webinar. Thanks to everybody for joining us today. And as I said, uh, I'll go jump in the pool.